Misunderstood, a podcast dedicated to better understanding MS and learning to live well with MS. I'm your host, Katie Sloan. If you're a new listener, welcome. I do recommend that listeners experience the episodes in order, as the concept often build upon each other. Our usual reminders as we begin. I'm not an expert, just a person like you living with MS and trying to make the best of it. Misunderstood is based on my personal experience, what I've learned over the years from my doctors, other care providers, and my own solutions-oriented research and pattern-finding obsessions. While the majority of the information I share has been vetted by doctors, I am not a doctor. My intention is that you use the information shared here as a springboard for discussion between you and your doctor regarding your future care options. And lastly, MS impacts each of us uniquely. I hope to shine a light on a wide range of approaches and strategies for living better with MS, but what you choose to do with that information is always your choice, and what works for one may not work for all. Last week, we took a deep dive into the research of how practicing gratitude can have a positive impact on our health and relationships with others. We also explored some fun ways to infuse more gratitude practices into our lives. We had a great chat about this at our flock meeting on Saturday, and I'd love to hear from you, too. Feel free to share your thoughts about gratitude with me, mymsflock at gmail.com, if you'd like. Today's episode focuses on self-care, as it remains one of the most difficult yet critical practices in my personal healing journey that I'm still trying to master. And when I thought deeply about practicing gratitude, it seemed like a good continuation of how doing things that are good for us are also good for others. That said, I originally planned to start sharing some interviews with incredible practitioners and caregivers this week. But we'll have to wait on that, because I've received several very strong messages from the ethers this week that I cannot ignore and need to push pause on that trajectory. What's going on, you ask? The last few weeks have been quite stressful. Of course, we're all in the midst of COVID-19, and we've seen an increase in both local and national numbers, which is tough to see, as what this means in the future is uncertain. In addition, we have a lot of unrest in our country and the world as we more deeply examine the corrosive role racism continues to play in our society and attempt to bring about long-needed changes. These are both very heavy and occupy much of my current headspace, but we've also had more going on in my sleepy little perfect town. Two weeks ago, we had an active shooter on the loose for 35 hours, targeting local law enforcement and were ordered to stay home even more strongly than with COVID-19 guidance. And this week on Monday, we were ordered to evacuate our home due to fire danger. Luckily, our awesome firefighters were able to put out the fire and we did not end up needing to evacuate, but packing up was a pretty intense process. I'm not gonna lie, it took a lot out of me. And we just got our internet back this morning. Wednesday, so it will be a miracle if I'm able to pull everything together and get this episode published today. All of this said, the issues this week that led me to need to spend some serious time reflecting on my self-care are actually MS-related, and I know exactly why I'm feeling the way I'm feeling. While it may seem frivolous, 
it's apricot season, and we take the Earth's bounty seriously around here. So in addition to everything else going on, the past few weeks have been very busy with many hours of picking, cleaning, cutting, cooking, and processing apricot jalapeno jam. Truly a gift from God, and a huge priority in our household, as it's our favorite fruit that our yard provides. The problem is that two of MS's gifts to me are decreased fine motor ability with overuse and extreme heat sensitivity. And spending so many hours over the hot stove when it's triple digits outside has resulted in a severe decline in my ability to use my hands and to see clearly, which of course, when you can't see, many things become difficult, if not impossible. On its own, I know that if I give myself a break for a few days, I will fully recover. What that means, however, is no screen time, staying in a cool, dark place, and resting. Just resting. None of those things are easy for me, especially when I want to be researching, writing, and recording a podcast, maintaining my online MS support groups, gardening, cooking, and having quality family time. And just yesterday, Eric informed me that the cherries are almost ready. (laughs) Eek! I'm excited and know that I'm not in a place to deal with that quite yet. Although I can't wait to enjoy our Jameson cocktail cherries. They're quite delish. So, in an effort to be vulnerable and open with my limitations, and also put myself and my self-care first, which is really hard for me, so that I can repair myself and not get worse, I am going to model self-care for us all by taking next week off. I will not be releasing a new episode on July 1st, and we will also not have a flock meeting on July 4th. While I'm disappointed, since we're all starting to really get into a nice rhythm with the weekly release, I hope you will choose rather to look at this as an exemplar of self-care in action, so that the next time your body sends you a message to slow down, you'll be more apt to listen to them, too. Thank you for your understanding and for your support. This week's gratitude is for Dr. Tom Hudson of the Center of Mind-Body Medicine. Dr. Hudson introduced me to today's experiential learning portion of the episode, which we'll get to a bit down the road today. For the past six weeks, I've been taking this course with Dr. Hudson and 10 other beautiful humans from around the world. It has been an intense study into how our bodies and minds are connected and ways to process trauma and move through life more gracefully. It's been a very interesting experience for me, especially since instructionally, the course is deliberately designed in a way that at first made me quite uncomfortable and then slowly revealed its magic over time. Being in the business of change management for so long and feeling so responsible for student outcomes in other teachers' classrooms, I became a very big player in the success of others. And yet, I didn't ever spend this type of energy on myself, both professionally and personally. Until now. Because here's the thing. In this course, we each take turns and share what we're going through. We are instructed to specifically not respond to others about what they said. Now, at first, this was really hard for me and seemed counterintuitive. 
to see someone suffering, going through something I had experienced previously and found a solution for, and not being able to share it with them. But here's the thing I'm finally learning to see. It's not my job to help them find solutions. It's theirs. Only they know what the solution is, and it's likely already inside them. It's helping me to see that I can see that someone is in pain and I can be with them for support, but not try to fix the problem for them. I rather need to believe they have it in them to find their own solution in their own time and place. Of course, we can and should share our personal experiences in appropriate settings, like our flock meetings, but I'm learning that there is real power in fostering self-reliance in myself and others even, well, especially in terms of our struggles. And it's a reminder that even in our flock meetings, we focus on our stories, refraining from telling others what they should think or do. This revelation may not be mind-blowing to you, but it is to someone like me who has dedicated their life to helping others and done so in a professional manner for decades. What if, I wonder, I started spending more time and energy helping myself than helping others. Of course, I immediately thought, that sounds so selfish. But that's because I've finally figured out through neuropsych evaluations and ongoing therapy that I was conditioned from a very young age to cater to others, often at my own expense. And that is a whole other can of worms we will dive into together one day in a different episode. I will leave a carrot here, though. I have found that this is somewhat of a pattern with MS folks. So marinate on that for now to see if it rings true for you. If so, don't worry. We'll be looking into boundaries in an upcoming episode. So all of this has made me wonder, could I feel better if I spent more time focusing on myself and taking better care of myself, especially when life throws a bunch of lemons, or apricots in this case, at you all at once. And that's what today's episode is all about. So thank you to Dr. Tom Hudson and the Center of Mind-Body Medicine for teaching me that I can achieve more if I put my own oxygen mask on first and actively tend to my fountain. Tend to my fountain? What, you say? I love thinking about my self-care in terms of a fountain. You may have heard the phrase, people are either fountains or drains. This is quite a powerful statement, and there are multiple helpful ways to look at it as an analogy for life. First, we can think of people in our lives as either fountains or drains. Of course, in reality, we are more likely a combination of both. But sometimes we fall into patterns in specific relationships where we are more of a fountain or a drain with someone. Do you know someone who is exhausting to hang out with? Do they take but rarely reciprocate? Are you there for them when they need you, but they aren't there for you in the same way? That is a relationship where you are the fountain, providing a lot of energy and life to the other person who is acting as a drain. In a similar fashion, are there people in your life that seemingly reinvigorate you every time you're with them? They are exuberant and joyful, and you feel 10 times better after spending time with them. 
These are super fountains, and they truly feed our souls. It's important as we build our flocks to be aware of this delicate energy balance and how it can easily get out of whack. Healthy relationships consist of a balanced to and fro flow of energy and taking turns being fountains and drains with one another. This is a great way to evaluate the health of our relationships with others. Now, while it's easier to identify whether other people are fountains or drains in our lives, it can be a bit more tricky when self-reflecting on whether we are a fountain or a drain in a particular relationship. Drains take away, deplete, empty. They can also get clogged up and give off an unpleasant odor of sourness. When we act like drains, we become critical, rude, impatient, and insensitive, to name a few. Think for a moment. Can you identify a time in your life or a specific relationship where you might currently be or were a little more of a drain that you might like to be? I remember a few circumstances when I could and should have been an encourager, but I chose to be a drain. And in a similar fashion, fountains are encouraging, considerate, and thoughtful. They inspire others to be the best versions of themselves. Can you think of a moment in time or a specific relationship where you are more of a fountain for others? Sometimes people can be fountains for each other and there's no drain in the relationship. I have several close friends with whom this is true. We energize each other and always leave each other in a better place when we interact. That's special. And frankly, we could all use more people like that in our lives. They remind me of the many beautiful symbiotic relationships in nature where both parties benefit from their partnership. The great thing is that even if these reflections don't yield what you hoped they would, we have a choice every day of how we show up in the world. We have the ability to change our attitudes, perspectives, and how we choose to interact with others. So, be a fountain. Why not? Wouldn't you rather fill someone's life with encouragement and value rather than deplete their energy or optimism with negativity? Being a fountain is a gift that gives to others. It provides relief and replenishes. People are drawn to fountains. Drains? Not so much. Secondly, you can also think of yourself as a self-contained fountain. And this is what I like to do when I think about self-care. Am I tending to my fountain so that it can recirculate well, stay clean rather than murky, and maintain its healthy flow? Or am I giving and giving and giving and finding my fountain isn't regenerating the energy I need to keep it flowing? MS fatigue is no joke, as many of you can personally attest to. And since I do know that some folks are listening who don't have MS, let me define MS fatigue in a way you can understand so it's clear how different it is from fatigue experienced by someone without MS. MS fatigue, to me, feels like the worst exhaustion you've ever felt, combined with the worst jet lag, worst aching body flu symptoms, and the worst hangover. Keep in mind, this is all at the same time. Sounds pretty awful, eh? Sometimes it can be. 
Luckily, I've learned a lot from Dr. Peyrovi and others about ways to better manage MS fatigue, and I'll take this opportunity to mention those here. The Mito Food Plan is one of them. This plan focuses on foods that feed our mitochondria and actively battle MS fatigue. I've eaten this way now for about three and a half years and can definitely tell a difference when I eat off plan too much. Luckily, Dr. Perovi told me that adhering to this plan 85% of the time would be enough to reap the benefits. So I've found it to be a very sustainable way to eat over time. And even my partner, Eric, has adjusted and enjoys eating this way too now. It's actually kind of funny. When we eat off plan now, we both feel pretty shitty. And it's immediate feedback that eating well matters, whether you're someone living with MS or not. You can download the Mito Food Plan for free online. I'll also post it on our Patreon page, as well as recipes and shopping lists. Back to Fountain Talk. Eating well is one way I tend to my fountain and keep everything operating as it should. So is physical therapy. And while I've tried to maintain as much as I could over these past four months when I couldn't go to PT, honesty here, I'm in a lot of pain. Spasticity is one of my most intense symptoms that impacts me on a daily basis, and it's worse when I don't sleep well. All those things I mentioned earlier that have been going on, well, they've all impacted my sleep, too. And we know everything is worse when we don't get enough restorative sleep. So my fountain is off. It's gurgling and sputtering and definitely not emitting the soothing sounds of a well-functioning fountain. I need to turn the switch off for a bit, let it rest, and then press reboot. And this is how I think of self-care. Let's think of this now in terms of MS by first reviewing the known data about who gets MS. Most of you likely already know this, but I want to go over it briefly in case we have any newly diagnosed listeners who are still trying to figure out what an MS diagnosis means for them. And then we'll look more closely at how our environment can impact our disease activity and progression. While researchers agree that multiple sclerosis is not contagious or directly inherited, epidemiologists, who are scientists who study patterns of disease, have identified factors in the distribution of MS around the world that will hopefully eventually help determine what causes the disease. These factors include gender, genetics, age, geography, and ethnic background. For age, MS is the most widespread disabling neurologic condition of young adults around the world. You can develop MS at any age, but most people receive their diagnosis between the ages of 20 and 50. In terms of geography, in general, MS is more common in the areas farthest from the equator. It's estimated that in southern U.S. states below the 37th parallel, the rate of MS is between 57 and 78 cases per 100,000 people the rate is twice as high in the northern states above the 37th parallel, at about 110 to 140 cases per 100,000. However, prevalence rates may differ significantly among groups living in the same geographic area, regardless of distance from the equator. 
As far as gender goes, in 2017, results of an MS Society study showed that 26% of all people with MS were male and 74% were female, with MS being three times more common in women than in men, suggesting to experts that hormones may also play a significant role in determining susceptibility to MS. Note. I believe this is important since hormones are impacted quite a bit by environmental factors and lifestyle choices. Stay tuned for more on that. As far as ethnic background, research has demonstrated that MS occurs in most ethnic groups, including African Americans, Asians, and Hispanics and Latinos, but it is most common amongst Caucasians of Northern European ancestry. Susceptibility rates vary amongst these groups, with recent findings suggesting that African-American women have a higher than previously reported risk of developing MS. MS is not considered an inherited disorder, but researchers believe that there may be a genetic predisposition to developing the disease. About 15% of people with MS have one or more family members or relatives who also have MS. That's out of the National Institute of Neurological Disorders. And in the case of identical twins, there is a one in three chance for each sibling to have the disease. Researchers and neurologists still can't say with certainty what causes MS. The ultimate cause of MS is damage to myelin, nerve fibers, and neurons in the brain and spinal cord. Together, these make up the central nervous system. Researchers speculate that a combination of genetic and environmental factors is at play, but it's not yet fully understood how. Did you hear that? A combination of genetic and environmental factors is at play. So we can't do much to easily alter our genetics at this time, but we can look into environmental factors. And I know from experience taking Dr. Peyrovi's course that environmental toxicity is or should be a huge concern for all of us. Don't worry, I'm not going to get political here about global warming, but we are going to look at how some things have changed over time with our environment. And to do so, we're going to take a closer look at autoimmunity. Because to me, this is where I feel recent research is providing clues that point towards some strategies I can employ to better help my circumstances and you, yours. Autoimmunity is a condition in which the body's immune system reacts against its own healthy cells and tissues. A study conducted by scientists at the National Institute of Health published in April of this year shows a concerning rise in the United States population of the presence of anti-nuclear antibodies, or ANA, the most common biomarker of autoimmunity. And while there are many ways that autoimmunity can present itself in the human body, if you know someone, for example, with a different autoimmune condition, or more than one, as they often frequently occur in clusters, you likely know that many of their symptoms can mirror those of MS, and this is one of the many reasons why often our diagnoses can take some time. Anyways, over the course of the last 25 years, researchers found an overall 50% increase, and it's a pretty fascinating study you might like to explore further. Briefly, the biggest increases in ANA were seen in adolescents, males, 
non-Hispanic whites, and adults over the age of 50. It's the most worrisome to see these, results, res, these results pertaining to adolescents because of the lifelong impact of immune dysregulation in these relatively young people. While reasons for the rise are still unclear, the study accounted for factors such as BMI, smoking, and drinking alcohol. So what is driving the rapid increase? That's the million dollar question, of course, and what they're trying to figure out through other studies. Dr. Miller says, since our genes haven't changed that much in the last several decades to account for this, this has to be due to changes in our lifestyles, exposures, or some other environmental factors that impact the immune system, but we don't know exactly what they are. And it may be that each gender or age group has entirely different risk factors, but we don't know that yet. That's why they're doing further studies now, to try to understand which of these different factors that have changed in the last 25 years are responsible for these autoimmune changes in different individuals. One more thing about autoimmunity. It's important to note that the autoimmunity markers don't automatically cause autoimmune disease. Autoimmunity is distinct from autoimmune disease. And autoimmune diseases such as MS, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, type 1 diabetes, psoriasis, are autoimmunity plus pathology. So you can have autoimmunity without an autoimmune disease. But when you have an autoimmune disease, you usually have autoimmunity. Miller also says the challenge that we have today is that we do not know for sure what you would necessarily get a disease as a result of having an ANA marker. More work needs to be done there. So let's get this straight. Scientists know that our genetics haven't changed over this period of time, so that can't account for the drastic increases. So this, and I'll say it again, has to be due to changes in our lifestyles, exposures, or other environmental factors that impact the immune system. For example, a study published in Journal of the American Medical Association two years ago found that stress-related disorders such as PTSD or adjustment disorder were significantly associated with risk of subsequent autoimmune disease. Does that mean that prolonged stress over time could be a factor? Hmm. Especially if you experienced a traumatic childhood and lots of additional trauma throughout your life? We will explore ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, as well as how resiliency can combat trauma in a future episode once we get to know each other a little better, as it's a sensitive topic. So all of this said, what does this mean about the role of the environment and lifestyle in determining the risk of MS? In a recent study by Hedstrom, Olson, and Alfredson, they wrote, MS is a complex disease where both genetic and environmental factors contribute to disease susceptibility. The substantially increased risk of developing MS in relatives of affected individuals gives solid evidence for a genetic base for susceptibility, whereas the most familial risk, most strikingly demonstrated in the twin studies, is a very strong argument for the important role of lifestyle and environmental factors in determining the risk of MS. 
Lifestyle factors and environmental exposures are harder to accurately study and quantify than genetic factors. However, it's important to identify these factors since they, as opposed to genetics, are potentially preventable. So although genetic susceptibility explains the clustering of MS cases within families, the changes in MS risk that occur with migration can be explained only by changes in the environment. So, if changes in the environment can be a major factor, then it seems to me that our environment, both aspects that we have control over and those we do not, matter, and could matter greatly. Some of these I've personally tested over the years. If you haven't visited ewg.org, which is the Environmental Working Group, to test your water quality, please do it, seriously. All you need to do is enter your zip code. When I was living in the Bay Area, independent testing results on ewg.org showed that the water quality was out of compliance, which means above limits considered safe, 11 of the last 12 reporting periods. They're reported quarterly, so 12 reporting period is a time period of three years. It also listed the chemicals contained in the water at high levels and what symptoms they are known to cause or exacerbate. This was all the info I needed to get myself a high quality water filtration system. The aqua gear pitcher I got dramatically changed the taste of our water. Frankly, it took a while to get used to it. But this is one of the early changes I made and it was around that time that I began to start feeling better. I should also say I drink a lot of water. Pretty much all I drink is water, unsweetened tea, kombucha, and alcohol. So I was definitely cleaning up what I was putting into my body. Interestingly, the Aqua Gear filters are supposed to last six months. Mine would barely last two because the filter was working so hard. Aqua Gear actually sent me free filters repeatedly because of this. They are a super cool company, and they'll also send you a mailing label to return used filters for recycling. Fast forward to when I moved a few years ago. All of a sudden, I had to start keeping track of when I put in a new filter, because they started lasting six to eight months, no problem. Interesting how water quality makes so much of a difference, and we take for granted that the water coming out of our faucets, or in bottles we purchase, is safe. In a similar way, I changed my diet, as previously mentioned, to eating the Mito way. This involved removing processed and prepackaged foods with lots of fillers and chemicals. At first it was tough, but as I began to find healthier alternatives that I actually enjoyed more than the harmful stuff, it got a lot easier. So food and water are pretty simple definitions of environmental toxicity. But there are others to think of as well, and you'll have the opportunity to learn much more about this when our website is up and running and you're able to take Dr. Peyrovi's course. For now, I'll provide a brief overview. Toxins can be naturally occurring, like mercury. They can also be synthetic, like BPAs from plastic water bottles. Toxins can be produced both outside and inside our bodies. External examples include societal pollution, pesticides, or things like secondhand smoke. Internal examples are things like bacteria or viruses that produce toxins. 
But one example that blew my mind at the time was that negative thoughts and stress add to our toxic burden and can translate into abnormalities in our health. We'll talk more about that in a minute, but I first want to mention that another important learning for me at the time was that endocrine disruptors interfere with hormone transportation in our bodies, as well as alter the normal levels of hormones in the body. And earlier, we read that hormones may be at play as to why more females are diagnosed with MS than males because of the way our hormones work. So... What are endocrine disruptors that mess with our hormones? EWG.org lists them in their entirety and provides a ton of information. So I encourage you to check out that site for more information. I'll post it on Patreon. But some common examples we've mentioned, like BPAs, mercury, and lead, arsenic, etc., do a lot of damage to our bodies. So if we're dealing with autoimmunity and our bodies are already malfunctioning, these toxins can seriously exacerbate what we're experiencing. When I visited EWG.org for the first time almost four years ago, I was astonished to learn that many of the products I was using in my home, like dish soap, cleaners, food storage containers, etc., and the personal products I was using in and on my body, like lotions, shampoo, cosmetics, feminine products, etc., contained significant endocrine disruptors. And EWG.org is a great resource because for each product, they dissect the ingredients and tell you exactly what is bad and how it can impact the body. So for me, as someone fairly newly diagnosed and severely suffering with my vision and dexterity and sensory issues in my hands, it was crystal clear that using these products on or near my eyes or hands was not a good idea especially when I use some of them like dish soap many times throughout the day. And when I looked at the half-life of some of these endocrine disruptors, I could deduce that I was constantly adding more to my body before it could even dissipate. Switching over to healthier products made a huge difference for me, and my toxin exposure questionnaire that I completed again just a few months ago was reduced by a good two-thirds. It's no wonder I feel so much better now than I did before. There's much more I could share on the topic and will at some point, but for this particular episode, I want to go back to one of the examples of toxicity I mentioned earlier, that example that completely blew my mind, that negative thoughts and stress add to our toxic burden and can translate into abnormalities in our health. This is actually a surprisingly big part of my personal MS story, and one that we will take a look at from several different directions moving forward. What's important to note now is that, at that time, I started to examine my stress triggers. Sure, some of them were work-related, until my disability retirement, which it then took a while to adjust to that too, but many of them had to do with where I was living. I was living in an older home built in the 50s with a mold issue until I called a specialist in. It was a stressful living situation with an often lovely yet always eccentric landlord living right next door. I lived in Silicon Valley, known for incredible technology, yet also related incredible environmental concerns like the water quality we previously discussed. And one critical aspect I didn't learn until I moved away 
I also had a lot of stressful relationships in my life. Remember I mentioned earlier about fountains and drains? Well, looking back now, it's clear that I had an overabundance of drains in my life and at the same time was working 80 hours a week and was not doing my part to tend to my fountain to make sure it was recirculating properly. And until I moved away and experienced how different it felt without those triggers and spent some time in therapy to better understand them and develop stronger boundaries to better manage those drains, I began to see how being overly helpful and feeling responsible for other people's problems was my responsibility to manage. I'm happy to say that over the past couple of years, as this learning has occurred, I've gotten much better at identifying drains and learning not to get sucked in by them. And finally, through the mind-body medicine course, I'm learning to release myself entirely from feeling like I need to help everyone find their solutions. By helping myself and sharing my story, I will continue to help others. It's time to put my own oxygen mask on first, and I hope you will too. So back to autoimmunity to connect all of this. Since most experts agree that environmental factors and lifestyle choices heavily impact the risk of developing an autoimmune disorder, then I think that's fantastic news for us. If people who spend the majority of their time and energy projecting care outward rather than inward are developing autoimmunity over time, could it be that a more balanced self-care approach might benefit us moving forward and actually help us all be more healthy? Just like practicing gratitude, actively maintaining a growth mindset, or tending our garden of weeds, and building a flock of strong supporters, all of these changes we can make to our environment and how we interact with others in it, they all add up. Think about the major successes you've had in life. While it's possible one happened totally spontaneously, like winning the lottery, most of the major successes in our lives involved careful planning, preparation, and dedicated effort over time. A lot of incremental progress that maybe wasn't even visible each day but certainly has added up over time. Here's the thing, doing all this certainly doesn't make things worse. Isn't it worth the effort if it could make things better? And how about a lot better? In my coaching of new teachers, I consistently coached teachers around self-care. If you've ever been a teacher, you know how insanely challenging those first few years can be until you develop a strong classroom management system, deep content and instructional strategy knowledge, and rapport and differentiation strategies to employ with your diverse set of learners. In a profession where it is truly impossible to ever complete a to-do list, many teachers become routinized to just keep going and going and going and going without taking time to direct some of their energy and care back towards themselves. And while I made this a part of every new teacher's curriculum, I rarely put myself through the same learning and practice until MS made that hypocritical omission abundantly clear to me. On mymsteam.org and a few MS Facebook pages, I have seen questions over the years that seem to support this theory. There are a lot of us that are or were educators, nurses, caretakers, social workers, and other service industries. 
Unfortunately, even on medical research sites like PubMed, there aren't currently a lot of studies on this. I'm hopeful that will change in the future, because at least for me and a good number of the MS folks I know well, it seems to be a trend worth further exploration. It is unlikely this is true for all of us with MS, but I hope as you listen today, you'll reflect upon the ways you currently set aside time, effort, and resources to practice self-care. Do you spend as much time and energy on yourself as you do for others? So, for our experiential segment of today's episode, I'd like each of you to think about something that is bothering you. It could be a symptom or pain you experience, or something like spasticity, tinnitus, constipation, depression. Nothing is off limits. You could even pick something non-MS related, like a decision you're trying to make in life, or something else in your life that you're thinking about changing. Just pick something you deal with on the regular that isn't terribly pleasant in its current form. I want you to imagine for a moment that you are sitting in a room with this thing you have chosen. Place them or it in a chair across from you. Take a good look at each other. When I first did this activity in the mind-body medicine course, I chose my intense MS itching that comes out of nowhere, can be anywhere on my body, and is insanely impossible not to scratch, even though the physical action of scratching does nothing to ease neurologic itching. This doesn't happen all the time, but when I'm feeling vulnerable like now, it happens more frequently. Now, imagine you're having a conversation with the thing, in my case, the itch. What would you ask them? What is the message they are trying to convey? Is the answer trying to tell me something I haven't yet heard? I hope you'll consider trying this activity. And if you're excited to try it and in a place where you could do this now, push pause and go for it. We'll still be here. If not, give yourself a gift of time and plan to do this later today or tomorrow. It doesn't have to take a long time, even just five minutes. It is recommended to write it out, and I believe this too, because for me anyways, when I'm focusing on the physical aspect of writing, I'm not trying to avert any control or monitoring over the actual conversation in my head. So it feels like I'm able to get a deeper and more powerful, authentic answer when writing, rather than just thinking about how the conversation might play out in my head. You know yourself best, though, so try whatever way feels right for you. After you've done this, think about what you learned and how you might choose to live differently moving forward now that you know what you didn't know before. For me, my itchy skin and I left our conversation in a much better place. Throughout the conversation, skin shared with me that they wanted me to take better care of my skin, that it's dry, it's angry, it's tired from working so hard to protect me without me doing my part, especially now that it's summer, and that often means triple digits and low humidity, which can really dry you out. I also was better able to understand why the itching is more intense at night. According to itch, it's because that's the only time I'm still and the only time I'm actually willing to listen to it. This is a good reminder of how I used to set timers throughout the day to drink more water, do breathing exercises, chunk physical work in 20 minute segments, stopping to check on my body to see how I was doing. 
And I realized I've lost many of those routines these past few months. So it all makes sense to me now. Itch and I ended our conversation with some agreements. I would commit to one detox Epsom salt bath each week, which I know really helps me despite my excuse that it's a waste of water. Not taking into account that the benefits far outweigh the waste in this case. Itch also reminded me, and I agreed, to do daily lotion application, keep my nails cut short, take breaks more often to actively check in with myself, and to stop wearing the clothes I know irritate me. Wool, elastic, anything tight or constricting. And in return, Itch would try to get my attention earlier with less intensity. While this may sound cheesy to you, we actually apologize to each other for not communicating better and left the conversation believing that there's no problem too big that we can't solve together. This was almost two weeks ago, and so far, we've been doing better. Does itch still show up from time to time? Yes, but I will say that we are well on our way toward honoring our agreements and working together, and that feels like a major self-care win. I'll offer another quick sneak peek into my brain. This activity was actually the deciding factor in my decision to do this episode now and make myself take a week off to practice stronger self-care. I sat in a virtual room with my struggling vision, aching hands and forearms, and our conversation revealed the answer. I'll also quickly shout out my dear friend, Lindsay, who reminded me that committing to releasing a new episode each week is an internal deadline that I have set. And if self-care is needed, it's okay and necessary to adjust that internal deadline. More than anyone, an audience of folks with MS will understand. The last thing I'd like to share when thinking about self-care is a tool called the Self-Care Wheel out of the Olga Phoenix Project. I'll post it on Patreon for listeners, but it's widely available also online. I'll briefly describe it here. The self-care wheel is a graphic organizer shaped like a pie chart that can help us maintain better balance in our lives and discover ways we can practice self-care in multiple categories. I'll share each category in a moment and a few examples. I'll also post, and you can find it online too, a blank copy of the wheel. So as we go through it, be thinking which items could make sense on your personal self-care wheel if you were to design your own. The first category is physical. This contains things like eat healthy, get enough sleep, be sexual, get massages, take time off, take a walk, get regular medical care. The next category is professional. And some examples are make time for lunch, Set boundaries and limit overtime. Take mental health days. Plan your next career move. Use those vacation and sick days. There's also a psychological component, and this includes things like go to therapy, do some journaling, join a support group, practice asking for and receiving help. Go to your favorite outdoor space and relax under a tree, or read a self-help book. The next category is emotional, and this includes things like practice self-compassion, 
cry when you feel like it without judgment. Say I love you more often. Find a hobby. Flirt. Cuddle with loved ones or pets. And practice forgiveness. In the spiritual part of the chart, they include things like go into nature, find a spiritual community, meditate, sing, watch sunsets, pray, volunteer for a cause, foster self-forgiveness, and lastly, personal. Learn who you are and who you want to be. Create short and long-term goals. Spend time with loved ones. Learn a new hobby like playing guitar, macrame, or painting rocks. You can use this chart as an idea generator and for motivation. And one thing I really like to do periodically is highlight examples of things I'm doing well. This makes it very obvious which areas of self-care I'm doing well and which I could ramp up a bit to be in better overall balance. The first time I created my own personal self-care wheel with things that meant the most to me, it was quite powerful. I was not only excited to do all the fun things, but I understood quite possibly for the first time that following through on these things were not at all selfish. They were living and living well. I encourage you to think more about your own personal self-care this week and next, since there won't be a new episode released next week. Try also to write out a conversation between you and some aspect of your life you're not quite content with, or a symptom you may be struggling with and seek to understand more deeply, like I did with my neurological itch. While I will take next week off to give my eyes and hands a good rest, I'm looking forward to the flock meeting this Saturday to hear how everyone is doing with self-care. I would also love to hear from other listeners how you're doing. So if you're inclined, reach out at mymsflock at gmail.com and let's get acquainted. As mentioned, following this and every podcast, I offer Zoom sessions for our Patreon listeners to discuss the episode's topic together. I hope you'll join us. Become a patron on patreon.com slash msflock for the Zoom session schedule and invitation links. Membership is only $1 a month to access these important flockings and access more great content and opportunities. After our July 4th break next week, we'll begin our dive into a wide range of different therapies available for MS that you may not have heard of, including cranial sacral therapy, acupuncture, and vagus nerve therapy. I'll also throw in a few other topics in between, as my goal is to always air guest episodes when they're available to attend that week's flock meeting, so that listeners can ask questions and engage with them personally. Feel free to submit questions, comments, or future podcast topics or guest ideas to mymsflock at gmail.com. Until next time, be thinking about how you can up your self-care, and a sincere thank you from me for helping me take the time I need to get myself back to my usual chipper self that can see and type and use knives safely. Lastly, remember, as we travel through life with MS, we're certain to hit some turbulence. We'll get through it, especially if we're flying together, supporting one another. Thank you for listening, and until next time, be well. Ah!